Hi, my name's Mandy Walker. I'm a cinematographer and I was the director of photography on Mulan and you're watching the Go Creative show. Hey everyone, my name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. This is the Go Creative show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Mandy Walker, A-S-C-A-C-S. She's the director of photography for Disney's Mulan. And uh, if you guys have not seen the film yet, I strongly suggest you do. It's really, really good. And not your typical Disney live action adaption. Um, you know, we've seen Lion King. We covered that on the show. Um, Aladdin, we covered that on the show too. And each one of them has kind of their own feel and vibe. Mulan is the same. In fact, Mulan's probably the most the most like traditional film in that it isn't a musical. And um, we talk a lot about the decisions, why they didn't, you know, make this a musical and how she treated the film from a cinematic standpoint to reflect kind of this different standalone film kind of thinking. You know, they didn't necessarily want it to be, um, you know, just a remake of the of the cartoon. They wanted it to be its own standalone film. And they did a really good job of doing it. So, we talk, of course, a lot about that. We talk about gender roles in cinema. You know how you how you film uh, a more masculine role, how you film a more feminine role, because that's a big theme in Mulan. And of course, the battle scenes in Mulan are just so great and meticulously shot. And uh, Mandy tells us a lot about how she achieved that in both lighting and cinematography. So there's a lot of stuff in there, and two special uh, lenses that she used that um, I've never heard of, and. Uh, it's kind of interesting how she uses these. So there's a lot of interesting things in there. And of course, Mandy has excellent work outside of Mulan and talk a little bit about that. So you guys are going to love it. And it's coming up in just a couple of minutes. But before we get there, I want to mention our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And we'll talk more about those guys later in the show. Now, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Um, and of course, our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, so that you can see what's going on with upcoming shows and have your questions heard on upcoming shows. We've got a couple of audience questions in the episode today. So thank you guys for submitting those to us. So of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, if you guys are listening to this episode, you can see it. You can see me and Mandy on the YouTube page. So it's definitely worth checking us out there. Um, and of course, when you follow us on social media, you get an opportunity to have your question asked on the show. And we do a little bit of that today. So let's dive right in because there's so much to get to with Mandy Walker, ASCACS, the director of photography for Disney's Mulan. So I'm here with Mandy Walker, ASCACS and Director of Photography for Disney's Mulan. Mandy, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. My pleasure. You must be so excited. Mulan is finally, finally coming out. Uh, what does it feel like? Uh, look, I'm just really excited because I know, especially the fans and um, just people in general have been waiting for this movie for since March, you know, when we were originally going to release and then it's missed its 
um, new dates because of COVID. So I'm just really excited. And and so many people that I know too have been desperate to see it. So uh, yeah, I'm, I can't wait. Well, I got a chance to see it today. Um, thankfully, your your team and the team at Disney gave us a screener and it's so, so good. The cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. And we've had the DPs on for Aladdin and The Lion King and all these new live action remakes. And they all have something different about them. And I think the approach that you took to Mulan is really fresh and engaging and a really smart choice. And what I mean by that is the fact that it's not a musical and you filmed it in a way that it has almost a more adult sort of vibe to it, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we were taking a different approach. We, you know, we, we of course recognize the animation and how successful it was and, um, you know, people uh, were waiting for the live-action version, but it is a little different version and it's, um, I think it's for a, a wider audience and people of, of more, you know, varied age because still young children are going to love it, but also adults and teenagers. Yeah, I, I felt that way too. And it's, I think it's not just the typical you know, Disney live action refresh that people have seen over the past couple of years. It, it really kind of stands on its own. You, when I'm watching it, I didn't feel like I was watching a recreation of a previous movie. I, it felt like its own film. And, um, and, and I thought that was just a really good choice. And I want to kind of hear from you how this began. When, when this film came to you and you were approached or however it, however it happened, was it always planned to have it be so different from the musical? Uh, yeah, it was. So the first um, the first time I heard about the film was I got sent the script um, by my agent and he also knew that I was a big fan of Nikki Caro and always wanted to work with her. So when I read the script, I saw that immediately and I loved what they'd done with it. Um, you know, the writing. And also I started to research myself and realised that Mulan is a story that's thousands of years old. It um, comes from a poem, the Ballad of Mulan in Chinese mm. culture. It's, a, it's a, a story that they all know and it's been told many times different ways. So this was a, our way of telling that story and, um, and Nikki's vision of it. Uh, so... Uh, then it became, you know, obvious to me that we didn't have to do, you know, follow the animation exactly. It was a new iteration. So in the Nikki Caro we're talking about is the director, just to bring people up to speed. So was was there a little part of you that was kind of like disappointed almost that there wasn't musical numbers in here? I think that would be so fun to shoot is like a big musical would be kind of a fun treat for a cinematographer. And were you were you a little bit sort of like, oh, surprised and maybe slightly let down when you first heard before you really dug your heels into the project? No, I wasn't. I tell you what I got excited about is because when I read it and I realized we were doing a film with martial arts and battle sequences, that was exciting to me. So that yeah. that was the thing I sort of um also, you know, it's a it's a it's a great story about a woman and it has good messages. So to me, uh, that's how I looked at it, and I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't think oh, it's not going to be musical because when I read it, I felt like it stood on its own a, a, as a different type of movie. You can really see that in the trailer too. Like when that trailer came out, it it really excited a lot of people. 
you knew right away it wasn't going to have the songs in it and it was just going to be a standalone piece. So I, I loved it. Like I said at the beginning, I thought it was a really good choice and and kind of a, a, a different way to approach it. Um, I want to talk to you about the kind of famously criticized animation for Mulan. When it first came out, you know, Disney was criticized for cultural appropriation and it kind of got a lot of flack at its original release. Were there concerns this time around that you weren't going to have the same pitfalls? Um, I think that, well, when I came onto the project, um, there was never any question that we weren't going to have a full Chinese cast and that the Northern Invaders would be um, Mongolian or Kazakhstan, um, uh, uh, you know, um, people that we found, you know, a lot of the horse riders. So by the time it was absolutely no question that, that that wasn't going to be the case. Talk to me about the inspiration for the look of the film. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we started, I mean, when I work with a director, I always start from script and story. So we go through a few times the script and Nikki would explain to me how she feels the the um, character is, um, uh, you know, experiencing things or the emotional journey for them and what she feels important for what the audience is feeling at a certain time in the script. So I take a lot of notes and and we talk about each scene and, and the experience that she feels needs to be expressed visually. And then we looked at, um, obviously we looked at the animation first, and then uh, we, look at, we looked at a lot of Chinese cinema and um, martial arts films, um, films that... Um, from filmmakers such as Zhang Yimou and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Last Emperor, and sort of gleaned what we could from that because a lot of them had um, a lot of battle sequences and martial arts sequences that were done in a contemporary way. And um, But then we also looked at Chinese art and architecture and we went to China I think four times altogether and I took a lot of photographs in um in uh, the um, Imperial City that we used as our uh, backdrop for the Imperial City in the film. And we ended up not shooting a lot there, not with our actors we shot in New Zealand. So then we have to look at how we're going to find the same locations in New Zealand, especially the landscape uh, that that was um, familiar. And we managed to do that, which was great. And, and you know, we spent a lot of time scouting and finding places that were similar to places we'd found in China already that we thought were appropriate. And then um, a lot of the sets we built on a back lot in New Zealand. So we tried to, you know, be very diligent in, in making <clears throat> most of what we could in camera. So, of course, we have CGI, but Nikki feels like she always wanted the actors to feel grounded where they were and to also, you know, um, make sure that... Um, most, you know, we didn't have to spend a lot of money on CGI, but also just that that feeling is there that we're in the real places. And um, so we did shoot some second unit and scenic unit in China for, you know, our big wide shots of the Imperial City and wide shots of some of the landscape. And then we'd come back to New Zealand and find um, particular places that would suit. Um, and... Uh, the other thing that, you know, one of the really important things that she'd said to me at the beginning of the fil film was that um, uh, 
Mulan is the centre of this story and that we always want to feel that the audience is with her on her journey. So I took that in to my mind about how we approach that photographically. And one of the things that I really noticed about um, the architecture and also the way that the other, a lot of the other films had been shot was they're very symmetrical in the Chinese art as well. And a lot of the architecture is set up that way. So it kind of, it really lent itself to putting her in the middle. Um, mm. And it was also, you know, a challenge for me is how we shoot the battle sequences with lots of people, horses, action going around, but the audience wants to be with her. So I started looking at different types of lenses that we could use that, that um, one, we had this old lens from the 1800s called a Petzval, and what it does is it focuses your eye to the centre of the frame and then the, uh, the rest of it sort of drops off in a very elegant way, not just an out-of-focus way, very elegant way. And uh, so we used that for her shots a lot of the time. And um, we also had a chi, what we called a chi lens, which was based on a Gauss lens where the edges drop off but in a, like a chromatic aberration with colour and and um, a little bit of a spiral effect that enhanced her her um, her elite power, you know, that she was special and that, that she could, um, once she realised that she had this chi and she had this um, special abilities, it was about sort of the awakening of that and for her. What was the name of that lens? A Gauss, G-A-U-S-S. Gauss lens. And then what was the first one? You mentioned two different lenses you were playing the with. The first one was called a Petzval, P-E-T-Z-A-L or Z-A-L. I have not heard of either of these, and I, but I know exactly the shots you're talking about because it did have those aberrations around the sides. And it, at first when I was watching that, I thought it was a post trick. I didn't think it was something in lens. So it's it's cool to see that that was in lens. I love that. I think, you know, again, we, we, we really set out to do as much as we could in camera because you get that kind of, I still think you get that organic feel. We didn't want it to look like, also didn't, especially didn't want it to look like a superhero movie. I mean, she doesn't have super how, superpower um, attributes like, you know, sparks coming out of her hands. There was none of that. So it's sort of as much as we could ground it in reality in, in sort of a little bit more of an old-fashioned sense um, of cinema to have it as much as we could in camera. Yeah, and I think there's something to those types of battles where they're not supernatural, so how like how do you toe the line? I mean, what are some of the things? Let's talk about the battle scenes because I wanted to anyway. Um, particularly the one that sort of culminates in this big avalanche uh, at, at right at, around the midway point of the film. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear kind of the way you approached that scene. What were some of the challenges you faced, and how you did sort of create that grounded look? Because for all intents and purposes, what she's doing is pretty supernatural. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty wild what she's able to do, but it always felt real. Tell me about that. I'm glad you say that um, because it means that we've achieved what we set out to achieve. Um, yeah. Well, again, you know, it was one of the, you know, when I was reading the scripts and see, and reading that sequence, I was getting really excited because I had never done anything like that before. And I love these, these sequences in other movies. So I was excited. Um, so what, I mean, Nikki is 
very organised and methodical. And so am I, so that we, you know, we were sort of on the same page in that sense. And um, we spent time doing a pre-visualisation of some of the more difficult and logistical parts of that sequence where um starts off with the armies facing off, then there's a battle and it ends in the avalanche and, and um, as you're saying. And uh, so we did a pre-visualisation of the beats and then some of the stunts that she had to do, we had to divide up into um, how we were going to shoot it uh, to get it to the screen. So, for instance, there's one, if once she's coming off a horse, we have to shoot, we had to shoot her separately, the horse separately and the background separately. So things like that have to be planned and have to be very meticulous to make work. And and um, so there are a few shots in the film that are like that, that we had to um, shoot in, in, in a specific way to make them seamlessly work, uh, fit together. And the other thing was, you know, for instance, with the avalanche, um, we had as much as we could, the same thing I was saying before, is the actors were reacting with snow, you know, so all the tighter shots of the guys uh, in in the snow and Mulan in the snow, we had real snow, well, you know, fake snow, but but we had yeah. in-camera snow around them and wind and and then it was enhanced by visual effects in the background. But the other, the other thing that um, we did on this movie, which I'd never been a part of before, is we had... Um, a military unit that trained the extras and the actors in all their martial arts, in um, the sword fighting, the horse riding, oh, wow. and and all the military manoeuvres and how the army would um, perform and how they'd line up and, you know, how they'd fire their arrows together. And they spent months doing that. And Nikki and I would go and watch you know, every few days sometimes and especially at the end and walk around with lenses But one of the and, and line up shots. But one of the things that we really wanted to do was to not make it, once the fight started, to not make it like a melee of fighting and, and people just crashing into each other and, you know, um, not really feeling um, what, what centering on Milan again. So we tried to look, and also we didn't want it to be super violent. I mean, it's a Disney movie and there's we didn't want blood and guts either. So we um, we looked at doing it in more of an elegant way and the way she moves is quite elegant and controlled. It's not just a smashing into people or, you know, doing a manoeuvre that ends up flying all over the place. She's very controlled and very elegant. So we wanted the camera to be that way too. So a lot of our shots were meticulously planned around how the stunts were going or the stunts would be adjusted to how we wanted to move the camera and um, to be able to travel with her, to keep her in the centre of the movie and have it, um, you know, more, uh, how do I say it? Um, it's very it's very stylized in a sense that that, yeah. that, that, that it's sort of keeping... The feeling and the and the sort of visual language of the rest of the movie, instead of just getting to battle and all of a sudden we just bang crash into each other and you know, and um, so that to me that was that was a it was a it was a big job but I feel like I'm so happy with how we did it and how it looks and and I feel that it works, 
um, storytelling-wise for, for her journey. Absolutely. In fact, watching it, I was thinking about how it felt like a dance piece. Like you, it is almost like you guys treated it as if you were doing a music video or something and you were following dancers. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's a really good way of putting it. And I think, you know, sometimes I remember Nikki just saying, you know, I don't want guys, you know, falling on the ground doing ugly faces to camera, you know, that sort of thing. I don't want someone crashing up to the lens and it's more, like you said, it, it's exactly like that, like a more like a dance piece. It, I mean, it's sort of, again, we didn't want it to not look real, but but it was, it, in a sense, it was just very meticulously um, choreographed. That's what I thought what was so unique about it is because it had such precision to the battles, but it was realistic. I mean, it, it had a very realistic feel to it. It didn't feel like a kid's movie it, ever. And, um, and something stuck out to me as I was watching it is I felt like there's a scene near the beginning where Mulan is being trained to like pour tea or something like that. I can't, I can't remember the exact details. In the, in the words, you think, you know, a better prepared host would have actually had this line ready to go, but our audience knows who I am. <laughs> so, but there, there's, uh, there's some lines of dialogue there that explain the ways that a woman should act as they're pouring the tea. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, this, this is, they're almost like explaining how the cinematography has to be in a way, because you now, she is following those rules, but doing it in her own way throughout the entire piece and the, her, her entire growth. And I can't remember the words and I wish that I did. Maybe you do. But I was curious if you were taking cues from that scene as a way to direct your cinematography. I think, um, yes, definitely. And that I took from the essence of that scene. But the thing about Mulan is um, she was never going to be that kind of girl. You know, she had something, she had a passion inside her or her chi that, and a bravery that was there that she didn't discover until she got into battle, you know, and mm. she got into battle because of her devotion to her family. So the thing for me I kept thinking always was what um, she discovers or we discover about her that's important is she's loyal, brave and true. So she ends up being true to herself. So that wasn't her. She's not the what, the woman to get dressed up like that and to be all poised and delicate. She's a she's a warrior, and she that's what she needs to find inside herself. And she ends up being one of the elite warriors. And and um, she doesn't realize herself until she um, gets to understand and and see what she can do, especially compared to other people. And her father always knew she had it inside her. But in their culture, women didn't behave like that. And that's why she has to get dressed up as a boy to go in the army and get and, and then, you know, suddenly gets to realise how special she is and then to use that and, and to be true to herself. And so, yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. So let's take a quick break and talk about Education, education for filmmakers. Now, we talked a lot 
you know, during the during the quarantine uh, with COVID-19, we talked a lot about best use of your time and to kind of take this time to learn. Now, of course, people are getting back to work. We don't have as much free time as we did, but I still think it's an important thing to do. Honing your skills as a creative are really, really important. And MZ is the best place to do it. MZ Education for Creatives, M-Z-E-D.com. What I love about this is that there are hours and hours of high-quality video-based education that's perfect for filmmakers. I'm talking about directing courses, courses in cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling. In fact, in post-production, one of their most recent courses is with the editor of, oh, where is it? I just had it up here. With the editor of um, La La Land and Whiplash, Tom Cross, ACE. So we're talking about like top-notch, high-level, A-list um, industry leaders teaching all of us on MZET. Now, it, of course, the education is really tied to the teacher. And if you don't have a great teacher, you're not going to really learn the same way. And MZET is all about having amazing educators. So in addition to Tom, like we just mentioned, Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the ARI Academy is on MZET. So you have great education, great variety of courses, and excellent expert educators. Now, of course, you can buy individual courses, and that's fine, but I strongly suggest you check out the MZ Pro subscription membership because then you have access to the library, the whole library, and you can check out all the courses. And it's really a good way to kind of get, um, you know, really take advantage of what MZ has to offer. Now, you can go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and check it out for yourself um, and see what they have to offer. I know you guys are going to like it. Anybody listening to this show is going to certainly appreciate what MZ is offering. So check it out, see what's on there, see what you think, and consider the MZ Pro membership. gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. I want to talk about the gender roles and the portrayal of genders in the film because it's a big part of the story and really timely for, you know, what's been going on over the past couple of years. Um, it, uh, something I wanted to discuss with you is how do you approach her, uh, Mulan acting as a man and then Mulan then revealing that she's a woman? Uh, were there different techniques in the lighting or the cinematography to support the storylines and how they're kind of different? Mm. Well, um, it was very important that when um, she was dressed up as a boy that the audience and believed that because then you understand how she could be in the army for that long and nobody realised she was a girl. So it was all about, um, for me, making her blend in with everybody else and to not stand out. And then the moment that you do... She realizes that she's going to reveal herself and she's going to come back and fight as herself. She strips her armor and her hair comes out. And so that was one of the other important things is that because I know in the animation she cuts her hair off to go into the army, but our Mulan kept her long hair and 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 tied it up. So when she lets that beautiful hair out, and then I we shot this um, slow motion of her ripping her armor off, taking her hair out. And you're seeing all her beauty as a woman. So for me, that was a very important special moment and how to capture that emotionally um, 
and so that's that's what we did. It was a it was a and and you see her then right up to camera and her face comes right up to the lens and you go, wow, you know, here she goes yeah. and she's coming back to battle and she's herself and as herself. And um, so they were the cues that I took and that's what we, you know, how we worked out that sequence would be. And I think it's quite powerful actually that moment. Absolutely. Can you talk to me about some of the like choices in the cinematography and also the lighting to reflect the two different sides of her, the part where she's pretending to be a man and when she ultimately reveals who she is? I, I think, um, well, the lensing was one thing, as we're saying, we were using her special her special portrait lens. And also um, one thing I did with the lighting for that moment is she's coming out of the geothermal area where she's had the fight with the witch and um, she, when she decides she's going to come back to battle and she's going to, you know, show everybody who she is and she's going to make an effort to, to save um, the emperor is uh, she goes, she rides through a tunnel in darkness and then at the very moment that she reveals herself, she comes into the light. So she's riding through a dark tunnel and then that moment she pulls her hair out, the light comes up. So we we actually did that in camera that, that it gets brighter and you see her. So you see her in the light for real. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other thing was... Um, you know, like I was saying, when she also comes back to battle for that moment, uh, one lucky thing for, uh, amazing thing for us, is that Yifei did most of her stunts and her sword work and her riding. And wow. So we could always um, focus the camera on her face. So I would set up five cameras when she's doing those amazing sword fighting and stunts that... Um, we could have really long lenses right here. And then I would, so I'd do that and try and separate her from the background in that moment because it was all about her. She was coming back into battle. The fight, fighting was focused on her. She was just, you know, boom, boom, getting rid of guys left, right and centre. And um, I dropped off the depth of field on all our cameras so that they were really low focus depth of field so everyone was concentrating on her. Again, putting her in the frame it was also about what she wore, that that red outfit stood out between the other opposing army and that she was shining. Absolutely. And individuality in combat is kind of frowned upon to begin with. So you you were really, you had a, a great canvas from which you could have a, a pop of color and an individual really highlighted. And there was also another cinematography technique that I found really interesting. I don't know what to call it, so I hope I can explain it in a way where you're like, oh yeah. But there are scenes where maybe she's like spinning around or doing a flip or something and the camera's like locked onto her body. And so no matter like where she moves, she's centered in the frame. Um, I don't know what that technique is called. It's almost kind of like a like a more advanced version of a snorri cam, you know what I mean? When like you have the camera mounted to your chest and it's looking right at you and it's always on you regardless of how you move. Um, I don't know what the name of this technique is, so hopefully you can educate me on that. But also I'd love to know sort of how you came to that decision and how you actually executed it. Well, I think, um, you know, like I was saying in the beginning, we wanted the audience to feel like she was they were with her the whole time. So they were, whatever was happening to her, we were centred on her. So um, that was mainly about the 
choreography and I didn't use that's a body cam you're talking about that that's, yeah 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 um we didn't do anything like that we had an amazing um Scorpio Techno crane which um was 45 foot long and great people driving it and um and I had a head called an oculus which could spin around in and basically in four axes so Again, a lot of those um, shots were choreographed and we would choreograph them, we'd go in days earlier to, to work it out. And so we could be, we were able to just by um, great operating, great camera operating and, and crane operating, we could lock onto her. So the camera was not attached. We were moving with her. And my guys that were, and the people that were on that equipment we rehearsed it, and that's why I think a lot of people love working on this movie because we were doing special things like that, and it was really pushing the, their um, abilities to the max. And that they would be, they all sort of came to the party and were really excited about it. But we would give them challenges like that, and and um, rehearse them with we'd rehearse them with a double, and then with the Ife. But we designed those shots, and we designed them quite meticulously to go with the action, you know. And, this, for instance, there's a shot where Bori Khan comes in at the beginning of the movie, the first time he hits the garrison, and it's the introduction to him. And he's riding his horse with the shadow warriors. And then when he jumps up onto the garrison wall, they run up the wall. It's in the trailer as well. Yep, and so yep, what we wanted exactly. to show was, okay, here he comes, here he comes, and then the world turns like these guys are doing something pretty amazing. And so the camera for the first time does this move where it locks onto him and it jumps up the wall with him and turns yes. with him. And that, so that was to create that feeling of a moment of change where you suddenly start to think, oh, wow. And it was the same with Mulan. Like there was just moments where we went, this is a moment where we have to, where we're with her and the camera is doing the same move as her. So the audience are traveling with her. I cannot believe that was operated. It's so perfect. I had great people, yeah. can I say? My New Zealand crew <laughs> and, and a few Australians. Yeah, they were great. <laughs> and a couple of Americans, actually. Every once in a while, American could give you something good, too, I guess. <laughs> um, we got a question from Fabricio Diaz. Um, we talked a little bit about this, but maybe you can elaborate just a touch more. What's the prep you need to do to film a huge fight scene? Mm. Um, well, I had like about four, I think almost five months prep on this movie. And we started prepping those scenes pretty much after we'd worked out what our visual language was and our approach. So months, basically. It took months and it took us, um, we worked you know, in previs and with storyboards for those sequences very early on, but the actual execution of them was spent weeks with the stunt team working them out and Nikki and I coming in and watching. So it's months. It's it's nothing quick. Let's talk about some gear, some equipment. Um, what did you shoot on? I know you mentioned a couple of lenses, uh, which were more specialty lenses, but what what camera package were you shooting on? Then also, what were kind of your go-to lens set? We shot on um, Alexa 65, 65 mil. And uh, 
we, I also had, I, I, every time I do a movie, I go into Panavision really early and I talk to this guy, Dan Sasaki, who's like a lens guru at Panavision and he makes the lenses or adjusts them or um, he's like, he finds old lenses in people's uh, basements and his lenses that he's found sort of in um, somebody, some stills photographer in Europe or something, and he gets the glass and he can make things up. But he he's a technician, but he also understands he's an artist. So I, I go into him really early once I've worked out with the director how we want the what we want the visual language to be and how I want I see the movie, and I can talk to him about or show him a painting. Or just say, because I felt like the landscapes in this movie should be epic, you know, and harking back to things like Lawrence of Arabia. And they mm. shot on 70 mil, which is a, one of the reasons why we looked at it, because 65 mil is, um, it shows you epic landscape and and um, it also is very intimate. So when you're right close to somebody in a portrait, the background can drop off in a really nice, elegant way. And it's something they did really well in Lawrence of Arabia, if you remember those big epic exteriors and then the very intimate interiors and the very intimacy with somebody's face. And and I find that that format works really well. And so our main set of lenses were based on the Sper- what are called Sparrow 65s and they are, are the type of lenses that Lawrence of Arabia used. And... Um, They've been reinvented and adjusted and and they're also, they're not um, what I call, they're not super clinical digital lenses because I never like the image to be like that, to be super sharp, you know, or super contrasty or anything like that. And they have an elegance to them. They have a creaminess to them is what I call and the mm-hmm. skin tones are true and they don't sort of, they. I mean, they look, they don't look out of focus, but they don't look clinically digital, if you know what I mean, because they're old yep. glass. So he spends months making the lenses for me and I'll go in and say this is right for this and can you make this a little bit, can you soften the edges on this one more and he can adjust it. But I like working with him because he's not purely a technician and I don't know what he does or how he does things, he doesn't tell me, but I can explain stuff to him in an aesthetic sense, and he can create that for an audience. And I think he's brilliant in that and knows how to draw people's eyes to a certain part of the frame or he can change the contrast and, or increase it or, you know. Um, yeah, so he's quite brilliant and, and I'm lucky to be working with him. Are you getting a theatrical release from Mulan anywhere? I know in the States it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Um, in some countries that don't have Disney+, Plus, yes, it is. And I'm not sure exactly of the rollout at all, but but I do know that that some countries that yeah will be theatrical. Where would you have done anything different, knowing that there wasn't going to be a large scale theatrical release, and and at least in the states, it's going to be solely Disney Plus for now, uh, just a streaming service. Uh, no, because um, I think the film. No, I don't think so. And, you know, a lot of people have huge TVs now. I mean, most people do, especially in the yeah. States, I know. So they're set up for more of a cinematic experience in, in their lounge rooms, you know, not not 
watching. I mean, and all films are eventually going to end up on the small screen. I think you have to not change that and and just keep thinking um, that our vision is made for the right decisions for the movie and not for what people are watching it on particularly. Let's take a moment and talk about collaborative editing workflows. Now, any of you guys that are out there that are that are editors, you know that working in Final Cut Pro and Premiere, especially, it, it, collaborative editing can be a little bit tricky, right? But PostLab gives you the seamless experience that you have been craving because it, A, gives you access to all of your files and it, and it saves the files locally. So you're saving the files locally, but it's also syncing all your changes with your entire team, wherever they are. So you're not like zipping files all the time and emailing them. It's not like that anymore. It also makes sure you don't have any broken files. Now, you guys know, if anybody have, has tried to do collaborative editing, you know, the two people working on the same library is a disaster waiting to happen. But PostLab makes sure that doesn't happen. Because the moment that someone starts working on it, it locks it from everybody else. And it keeps track of who's doing what. So it makes sure that there are no broken files. And also they have what they call Time Machine 2.0, which is like the next evolution of Time Machine. You can browse the history of every library. You could jump back and forth between versions and find the particular edit you're looking for within seconds. And it opens up exactly how you left it, right down to the blinking playhead. So it gives you access, file protection, and you know a history, a browsable history. So this is really the this is really the experience you want when you're editing collaboratively. And it's for Final Cut Pro 10, which is of course my preferred NLE, but also Premiere, which I know a lot of you guys are working on. And the great news is, is Go Creative Show listeners get three months free. Three months. And all you have to do is go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. And I strongly encourage you to. This will change the way that you edit for the better gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab for three free months. Check it out now. Let's talk about your lighting philosophy for Mulan. What was your, I guess, how did you approach lighting for this? Because there are, there's, you're working with so much. I mean, you've got moonlight scenes, you have fire, you've got snow. I mean, you got everything possible, desert scenes. Like you, you really are dealing with a ton of different looks. Um, so talk to me about kind of your approach to the film lighting wise. Again, you know, I take a lot of my cues from um, the story, you know. So for instance, uh, when Mulan is in her Tolo at home, which is her village with her family, we want it to be quite colourful and homey and safe and warm environment. So a lot of the lighting comes, it feels like that, and it's soft and it's, it's, it should be beautiful. So you want to feel the connection and, and um, the love, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was my cue for that part of this, the story. And then um, the, in, the, when she goes into the emperor's um, throne room, it's got to be opulent and golden and glowing. So that was my cue for that. And then the battle sequences have got to be, especially the big battle, was harsh and desaturated a little. And so we found landscape that was that. 
and the lighting was quite white and um, not so uh, not so warm and colourful. So the lighting was very bland. And then um, there were certain moments, you know, in the, um, for instance, in the um, yurt when Bori Khan is talking with his um, the, the northern invaders that wanted to be sort of quite scary and dark and moody and so I took that approach and used the fire and then we designed like a, a chimney, a hole in the yurt, which is a tent, so that it would be a single shaft of light coming down and it would be all top lit and a little bit scary and, and yeah. things like that. But the But technically, can I tell you one thing that I did because I knew this was a big movie with big sets, a lot of sets. We had a huge schedule that we, it was quite tight for even a big movie. I think we shot 74 days. So what I did was, um, for instance, in the bigger sets, I would set up the lighting for 360 degrees. So I would have all my lighting fixtures. I used a lot of LEDs and they would be on a dimmer board and they could change colour and they could dim and they could also be raised up and down so that the angle could change. So instead of just being at the top, they could come, oh, my image is back to front, they could come down and be on the side. So Do you have a, you have a mirrored image right now? I or, do, or yeah, back which, is, which is <laughs> disconcerting. Um, but um, so I was prepared for anything and, and so when we would turn the camera around on, on a huge set, I would be able to turn the lighting around in the same time. So say 15 minutes, 20 minutes, we boom, on a set that was 300 foot long, I was relit. And I also tried very consciously to keep most of the lighting off the floor so that it would be up in the lighting grid and be able to be lower down or, you know, for close-ups, sure, I bought lights in, but um, most of it happened off. And that that is also about just giving the actors the floor. And when we rehearse or, you know, say they they need to move around or they they decide, Nikki decides we're, we're going to look over here all of a sudden, I don't have a whole lot of gear everywhere. So with that approach, and it took a lot of planning, um, I found it worked really well. And, and the same with when we were doing our exteriors, I had these big lighting, we called them spines, and they were on... Um, um, construction cranes and they were a series of boxes, lighting LED boxes, eight foot by eight foot with different amounts of, I think they had eight fixtures in them. And um, I could turn them on or I could spin them round and um, and do it pretty quickly to light a huge set. And But I was always very conscious too that, you know, you can do that, yes, but it still had to look beautiful. And I wanted the film to look beautiful. And and even in the and the there was beauty in the the desaturated geothermal places where they were shooting, but it gave you still gave you the emotion of the scene. <clears throat> so that's that's how I approached it. And again, it took planning, um, but uh, I was really happy with it. And the same with you know, even when we were in the smaller sets, I would just make sure I was lit for three hundred and sixty degrees. So even though we planned a lot of stuff, if we were going to change anything. For any reason, I was ready for it and people didn't wait for me. And um, so in that sense also, you know, for such a big movie, I just I really made the most of my pre-production and planning and just was very organised. So, so you're lighting for 360, but does that sort of limit you to mostly top light in that situation? No, it, it was, again, I could, 
I could lower my lights down. Okay. So they were they were mounted 360, but you had control so you can bring it down from the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, drop them down. Okay. That's kind of cool because I've definitely talked to other DPs that, you know, they may have used this technique and I just wasn't picking up on it, but I've talked to a lot of DPs that have lights on, you know, controllers. They've got the dimmers and the programming, but for the brightness, for the color, not necessarily for the positioning. So this is kind of an interesting point that I really haven't heard much on the show. And even in like a small set, we always had lights ready to come down through the window or, um, uh, you know, I'd always have top lights that I could vary whether they were on a little bit or a lot or just in a certain part of the set. And then, um, like I was saying, for some sequences or, you know, definitely close-ups, I'd bring something in um, into the um, in closer to the actors from the floor. But for most part, and a lot of the big sequences, especially when, you know, we're dealing with an army, you know, there's a lot of sequences in the garrison at night that was lit by fire and I just set up a long line of, of um, lamps that could... Uh, come down and be on and then when we turn around the the other side would come down and be on and um we, yeah we could shoot without a lot of i mean things would be moving when when we're moving the camera we would all be moving stuff would be happening but it was very you know organized and and um and planned what are the benefits to lighting 360. If like if you you're talking to other cinematographers right now thinking about how they're going to approach their next film, what would you say are the benefits to it? Time. Like I was saying, being able to let the actors and the director have freedom so that I wouldn't have lit a certain pre-lit a certain set that um we'd walk in and things change and I'm not ready for it because I've just done one thing. And so I like to be at it because things change. You know, you can be meticulously planned, but for various reasons things change and all of a sudden you're shooting in a different room in a house or you're not shooting in that direction, you're shooting in that direction. And I like to be able to to, to change very quickly if, if things change. We got a question from uh, Twitter here, Chasing Photography. In your ASC article about the production of Milan, you talk about the remote grading process. The question is, was that a game changer and do you see that becoming the norm? So can you just um, first explain to us what this remote grading process is and then, you know, answer that question? I have a DIT on my set and I would set up a LUT beforehand that we're all working to, uh, all the cameras, but I I now, as I've been shooting more and more films, I have a very simple LUT that I, I design at the beginning of the show, which is a lookup table that the where is a base grade that we're working to on set. And um, even now, I'm doing less and less in the LUT. I do, um, you know, worked with a ARRI, a basic ARRI LUT called K1S1, which is a little bit less saturated colour and a little bit lower contrast than Rec. 709. And then we just, um, in our testing, we decided that we would bump up the reds a little bit because red was a very important colour in the movie, as you know, Milan's costume's yeah. red. Um, and then I would be on set and, for instance, in a night shoot or in some of the interiors, if I felt like, 
it wasn't looking warm enough or contrast enough, I would wind that in a CDL on set and then that would go to dailies and the dailies would be coming back with that baked in. Um, and then by the time I got to the DI, I used that as, as a guide for um, grading the film. But I don't do a lot of grading on set. I try and make it so that one thing I do do is I make sure that I have enough information and I sort of treat digital like I used to shoot film, which is um, I keep the shadows open a little bit uh, so that if later on, you know, for instance, someone's wearing something black like I am and we want to see detail because especially on Mulan, we had very intricate fabric and leather work and amazingly beautiful details that I don't want to lose those. So, so if, if, if I want to later on bring that out, I have the information there. So even if I'm bringing the CDL down to make it darker, for instance, in that yurt scene, I made that, I had that CDL open. I mean, the exposure was open like a stop brighter than you see on the screen. And that I brought the exposure down on set so that it looked the way we wanted to. But knowing that, say, we could isolate this black part of their costume or whatever, that we would be able to bring that out on its own. So I never want to get in a place where we're stuck and it's too dark because you can always make things darker in the DI, but to make things brighter, if there's no information there, you can't do that. And as long as um, you can only do it to a certain extent. Um, but as long as I'm protecting my highlights and they're not burning out, that's that was my approach. Mm. In our last couple of minutes, I'd love to get your opinion on or your thoughts on the most challenging lighting setup in the film. If you can let us know what was your most challenging lighting setup and how you overcame that challenge. I, I, um, I think it was the, the garrison at night. It's like a huge location. And what um, what I didn't want to do was um, have a great big fake moonlight going on, you know, that yeah. didn't. And I also thought they wouldn't be functioning that light anyway. So I uh, made sure that the, the because they had braziers and, and torches for firelight that was sort of sprinkled around, and I made sure that that was my um, uh, source of light for that my reference for the source of light. And so to be able to create a big firelight source, and I did have a little bit of moonlight. What we did was um, to to get depth and contrast of colour in the scene so it wouldn't just be um, orange and black. I, I had them, um, it was an exterior set at night, I had them have like an atmosphere and a mist, like a smoke that was coming from braziers or, every, or anywhere that was, consistently through the whole set. And then I, what I did was I just glowed the moonlight into the mist. So the top of it was glowing. So the actual atmosphere was blue, bluey green, cyan colour, and you'd feel it in the reflection on the armour, but they were mainly lit with orange uh, firelight colour. So to do that on a big scale I think was the most challenging and to keep it consistent. But, um, yeah, we worked out a way to do it and I'm pretty happy. Well, the film, it really looks great. The cinematography in this is is awesome. And if anybody listening out there is like, oh, it's a Disney movie, this is very different. This is not the typical Disney movie and certainly not the typical remake 
of of a cartoon. Like it it stands on its own as its own film, and it really is just excellently done. So you did a really good job on this, man. You and the whole team, I'm sure. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a great collaboration. And you know what? It's just very satisfying to have a director that can get the right people around that are on the same page because we all were. And I think that's why I'm really proud of how the the whole, you know, the whole visual language of the movie works with costume and art direction and myself and makeup and, you know, the post people, the visual effects that that Nikki made sure that we were all a team, you know, and all all on, uh, working to the same goal. Yep. And my last question, um, production during COVID-19, have you, are you shooting right now or how have things changed for you? Um, well, I'm on um, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis film and we... I know. I <laughs> saw that on IMDb and I'm like, oh my God, she's shooting that. What yes. a great film that. I mean... yeah. That, that's great. You must be very excited. I'm very excited. But we shut down in March um, when everybody else shut down. I think we were one of the last films in the world because we're shooting in Australia and yeah. the virus is not very prevalent here. Um, and we've just got back to work a week ago. So we're back into pre-production, hoping to shoot very soon. And all our actors are coming back in and they're all having to um, go into quarantine and yep. uh, and a lot of my crew are quarantining right now and they, they get let out onto um, the rooftop of the hotel and they leave little messages for each other <laughs> and they were telling me, which is kind of cute. But, um, yeah, so fingers crossed we, we're full steam ahead right now, which is great and it's exciting to be back and um, because, you know, everybody's been affected by this. So it, it, it's, you know, it, and not a lot of productions have been able to get back. So we're, we're lucky. Do you have to change anything or is the idea that after the two-week quarantine, you can you can do everything as you were before uh, on camera? I mean, I'm not talking about production. I'm talking about like the script. Does anything have to change now to abide by COVID restrictions? Uh, it's more about our on-set protocol. You know, we all have to yeah. be tested twice a week, wear masks, PPE, and protecting the actors basically is what we're doing yeah. because I think... Um, we're not, I know some films are deciding to do a lot of CGI work to distance people or working in a volume. We're not doing anything like that. We're, we're, we're doing our due diligence and we have a very strict protocol on set and, and coming onto the lot. You're not even allowed on the lot if you haven't been tested um, like wow. two days before. And then we get tested twice a week in our temperature every day. And, um, you know, like I said, there aren't, very many cases in Queensland, very, very small amount. So we're, we're, you know, I think we're in a pretty safe position. Are you guys um, adopting that zone system that was in the white paper? Yes. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. But I've worked on a couple of commercials here before we came back and we were doing that. And after a day or so, people pretty much clicks in and, and becomes just part of the process. And I didn't see it as a problem at all. Yeah. I'm getting that too from most people that I talk to. There's sort of, I, I wouldn't say people are liking it, but people are finding that it's not as prohibitive as they were fearing. Yeah. Yeah. And it just means, you know, you're just a bit more strict with who's on set when giving people their time without everybody kind of jumping in and all doing things at once. It's it's a bit more disciplined. Yeah. Well, I mean, creative people are creative. That's 
that's what you guys do. So, <laughs> you know, you're problem solvers and this is just another problem to solve. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm so glad you're doing well. You're healthy and on a really great film with that Elvis project. That's going to be a lot of fun. So please come back. Yes, anytime. about that. Thank you so much. No, my please pleasure. Do. I but will. for now, if you want to celebrate Mandy's work, Mulan on Disney Plus and, um, you know, hopefully in theaters in other parts of the world that don't have Disney Plus and definitely go see it. You guys are absolutely going to love it. This is a, it's a really great film. The cinematography is amazing. And now we know how they shot it. So thank you, Mandy, so much for being on Go Creative Show. Thank you very much, Ben. My pleasure. All right. I want to thank Mandy Walker, A-S-C-A-C-S, the director of photography of Mulan and so much more. Of course, we're going to put a link to all of her stuff in the show notes so you guys can celebrate her entire catalog. And she's got a lot there to celebrate, that's for sure. And I also want to thank Matt Russell for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find him at gainstructure.com. And our producer, Connor Crosby. He puts it all together behind the scenes, and without him, this show really would not happen. So you guys, please follow him at ignitionvisuals.com and on Twitter at Ignition Visuals. And while you're on Twitter, you can follow me, Ben Consoli. In fact, follow me on Instagram. I, I don't do so much on Twitter, honestly. Instagram is really where I post all my stuff. So if you love behind the scenes, and I know you do, I'm always posting about what I'm doing um, on my in-person shoots and my virtual shoots too. I've been posting a lot about that and people seem very interested in that. So follow me on Instagram. But really the most important thing is to follow Go Creative Show, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Without you people, we wouldn't be able to do this show. And uh, you've been so supportive, especially in the past few months. We really, really appreciate it. So Listen and share and continue doing what you're doing. You guys are an amazing audience. And I really, uh, I don't thank you enough. And uh, sincerely, you have kind of kept us going these past few months. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, I want to thank our sponsors, MZ Education for Creatives and Post Lab Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro. Without those guys, the show simply wouldn't exist. So please, if you love us, please love them too. Support those guys and we'll be able to keep bringing you new episodes every single week here on Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmaking.